know, it's been said that God is a gardener. And if you think about it, when God created the world in Genesis chapter 2, what did God plant? He planted a garden. And He put the first man and woman in that garden to tend it. He planted two trees in that garden. One tree to represent the choice that we have to follow and obey God and to trust God and experience life. And another tree to represent how we can choose to rebel against God and trust in ourselves and do our own thing and experience death. Jesus often used agricultural metaphors in His teachings, such as the parable, you might remember the parable of the four kinds of soil. You know, the, the, the farmer's throwing his seed, and it falls on rocky soil, and it falls on soil with weeds and thorns, and it falls on the path, and it falls on good soil, and how that, those soils represent the different kinds of hearts and our receptivity to the Word of God. And Paul uses agricultural references in Galatians chapter 6, where he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. But I think we could say that Paul's most famous agricultural reference is the subject of this nine-week series, The Fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, 22-23. Let's turn to that, but I want to back up a little bit. I want to give us a little bit of context to this very familiar passage. So let's start together in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13. I invite you to follow along in your own copy of God's Word. Paul says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So why is it that Paul and Jesus love to use something so grounded and earthy to talk about things so spiritual and heavenly? 
It's fascinating how often the Bible uses this agricultural language. And I think the reason is because it points us to the balance between work and grace. See, think about all you have to do to plant a garden. How many of you guys have ever planted a garden? Raise your hand. I would imagine a lot of people in this room have planted a garden. So when you plant a garden, think about all that you have to do. You have to prepare the soil. You have to pick the right kinds of seeds. You have to plant them the right way. You might do a little bit of watering. But then really all you can do is sit back and wait for those seeds to germinate. You you, you go out there and you look every day and you wait to see that little sprout of green poking through the dirt. And there's not a thing that you can do to make those seeds germinate, is there? You can't coax them. You can't talk them into it. You can't motivate them. All you can do is sit and wait. You can help the conditions to be right as best as you can for germination and growth, but you can't make those seeds do a thing. And then once they start to grow, what do you do? Well, you weed them. You keep the bugs and the bunnies and the birds away from them. You know, you you have to kind of protect and defend them. But again, you wait. You can't make the sun shine. You can't make the temperature be right. You can't make the rain to fall. And you can't make those plants bud, flower, and produce fruit. So gardening is a partnership between you and God where you have things to do, but ultimately you wait for God to do His thing and make those plants grow and bear fruit. It's the perfect balance of of how work and grace go hand in hand. And the same is true of our relationship with Christ, of our own spiritual growth. Paul said in Philippians 2, "...continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling." For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. So notice here that Paul tells us not to work for our salvation, but he says that we are to work out our salvation. But then he says that God... Put put that verse back up there, just a little bit longer. So notice that he tells us to work out our salvation, but then he says that it is God who is working in us so that we can work out that salvation, so that we can act and do the things that are pleasing to God. We partner with the Lord in our own spiritual development. In Galatians 5 and 6, Paul uses the language of walking by the Spirit, or some translations say living by the Spirit. So there's the part that we do. We walk, we live by the Spirit, but then there's a part only God can do, and that is to produce the fruit of the Spirit in us. In Sunday school this morning, if you were in there, we looked at John chapter 15. And we talked about what Jesus says about how He is the vine and we are the branches. Uh, And as long as we stay connected with the vine, as long as we abide in Christ, we'll be fruitful. Because we can't produce any fruit on our own apart from Christ. All we can do is put ourselves in in close proximity to Christ. All we can do is put ourselves in a position so that the Spirit of God can work in and through us to produce fruit. So as we think of the fruit of the Spirit this morning, let's think of the fruit of the Spirit as one fruit. Notice that it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. It's singular. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of Christ showing through us. 
And what Paul lists here in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 are nine virtues that together form and reflect this character of Christ in us. And it is our responsibility to partner with the Spirit in cultivating this character, in nurturing these nine virtues. See, the thing about a virtue is a virtue doesn't come naturally. We have to discipline ourselves. We have to develop habits. We have to cultivate those virtues, right? Teaching your child to, to share, does that come naturally? No. Sharing does not come naturally. Mine, I think was Abby's first word. Um, we, we, you have to cultivate that. You have to nurture and develop that virtue. It's like a ball rolling downhill. A ball rolling downhill. That's the natural inclination of humanity. We are, because of sin, we have a propensity to go downhill, to go further and further away from God. Does it take much effort to roll a ball downhill? No. But to roll a ball uphill takes intentionality. It takes work. It takes persistence. You can't stop for a second, because if you stop pushing that ball uphill, what's going to happen? It's going to roll downhill. Spiritual growth is about moving our ball uphill toward becoming the kinds of people that God wants us to be. And it's not natural. We have to be cultivated constantly. If we stop for a minute to cultivate our spiritual growth, it all goes to seed. It all gets overrun with weeds. We have to work at this every day. And that's what this packet is here to help you do. This nine packet. And I, the idea is for every household to take one. And there's, some, there's a self-assessment in here. There's a, an instruction guide in here. So I'm not going to go into it too much. But basically, what we're asking you to do is to make a commitment every week. Whether it's you and a friend, you and your spouse, you and your small children, or you and your teenagers. The idea is for you to commit every week to pick one of these activities. For example, this week on love. And do that activity. And just do an activity each week on that fruit of the Spirit to help you unpack what we've talked about in worship, to help you apply it to your life and to your family, and then to kind of keep track with these tools with your kids and encourage them to, to be intentional this week at looking at ways that they can show love. So I'll encourage you, please, if you didn't pick one up in Sunday school, please pick one of these up and, and put it to good use in the coming nine weeks. So today, let's look at the first virtue of the fruit of the Spirit, love. One preacher said that love really is the fruit of the Spirit, and all the other virtues are just amplifications or expressions of love. Sort of like how light contains all the colors of the rainbow. Love contains all the fruit of the Spirit. So as, as we go in the weeks to come, really we're just kind of starting to look at a different aspect of what true Christian love looks like. So as we look at the fruit of the Spirit of love, we first have to have a proper understanding of what love is. We live in a love-saturated society. The radio plays songs about the pleasures of love. Movies show us stories about the triumphs of love. Advertising promises love. Greeting cards express love. And there's a myriad of images, themes, and voices that tell us that all we need is love. And love is what makes the world go round. Well, the Bible tells us that God is love. 
Jesus said the greatest commandments are to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul tells us to put on love above all else. And that love is the most excellent way. And that of faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest. But do we really understand what true, real love is? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 17 and 19, 17, 18 and 19. Paul says, And I pray that you, and then here's that agricultural reference again, I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So the kind of love that God has for us and that God wants to develop in us is a four-dimensional love. And God wants to prune out the lesser loves in our life so that His deeper, fruitful love can come to bear. The Greek language has several words for love, but the word Paul uses is agape. Agape is the kind of love that God has for us and wants to develop in us and wants to express through us to the world. Agape love is unmerited favor. It's unexpected love. Unprovoked love. Love that seeks the good of other people. It's not conditioned nor dependent on the recipient. So let's look at the four dimensions of love. First, this kind of love is a wide love. It's a wide love. How wide is your love? Is it only wide enough to embrace your family? Those who look like you, think like you, talk like you, vote like you? Is your love wide enough to embrace a stranger? A Republican? A Democrat? An enemy? How wide is your love? You know, nothing will test how wide your love is more than going to Walmart. Amen? <laughs> you know, you either love someone wide enough to, uh, to go out of your way to meet them, or, or you go out of your way to avoid them, right? You know, it's like, oh, oh, they go down this aisle, I don't... Or in the checkout line. You're, you're in the checkout line, maybe you've got a nice cart full of stuff, and you see somebody come up behind you, they have like four things. And you look at your cart and you look at what they've got and you think, all right, should I let them in front of me? Well, if it's your son or your daughter or your spouse or your best friend, you might let them in front of you. But what if it's a stranger? How wide is your love? Or, or you're driving in the parking lot, right? And you see that sweet spot, parking spot, the one that's close to the door but right next to a cart return. You hear what I'm saying? That is the sweet spot, right? That's the dream. And you're about to pull in and somebody else comes in there and they've got their blinker on. And it's nobody, you don't know this person. So what do you do? You gun it, right? And you get in there. But what if it's your spouse coming around the corner? Do you let your spouse have the spot? My office is open for counseling Monday through Friday. All right, well, then I don't need to ask the next question. What if it's Pastor David coming around the corner? Because I'm out of luck. 
How wide is your love? You know, when Jesus gave us the greatest commandment, He said that we should love God with all of our being and we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So in a way, you could say that love at its most narrow is a love for self. That's as narrow as love gets. But Jesus says that we're to widen our love to include our neighbors. Someone once asked Jesus, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus turned that question on on its head with the story of the Good Samaritan. And he said, no, 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 the question isn't who is my neighbor, to whom will you be a neighbor? Is your love wide enough to include a stranger? Someone different from you, like a Samaritan showing care and concern for a Jew. But then Jesus goes on to ask us to widen our love even more, to not just love our neighbor, but to love everyone, including our enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. But if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is saying, look, there's nothing supernatural about loving people that are like yourself. Loving people that you know are going to love you in return. But if we want to embody the gospel so that the world will take notice, we have to love our enemies. After all, God loved us when we were His enemies. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love is the ultimate expression of the gospel. It's the ultimate fulfillment of the law. And God wants to perfect this kind of love in the lives of His children. How wide is your love? How long is your love? That's the second part of this, long love. 1 Corinthians 13, we call that the love chapter, right? It's read at weddings a lot. But that, that chapter is not about romantic love, it's about radical love. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4-8. through 8. He says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude. It gives your spouse the parking spot at Walmart. It's not self-seeking. Okay, maybe that part's not in there, but if Paul had been writing today, he would have put that there. It's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. The first description there in verse 4 says love is patient. Some translations say long-suffering. What does it mean to be long-suffering? It means that you're willing to suffer long. It means you're, you're willing to wait for someone to grow and mature. Love bears and believes and hopes and endures all things. Endurance, meaning it doesn't give up. Love sticks with you. Love doesn't quit on people. Love is a marathon, not a sprint. If you love someone, you're in it for the long haul. Now, human love tends to be measured and calculated. Now, uh, mission trips are great. I love mission trips. I've been on mission trips. I take kids on mission trips. But mission trips 
can often be a form of calculated, measured love. Because you can say, all right, I can love these people for five days. I can go in and I can love on these people for five days. I can give of myself for five days because I know it has a beginning, it has an end, and then I can move on. But God calls us beyond mission trip love to have missional love. Missional love is a love that embraces the unknown because you don't know when, it, when it's going to end. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know how long you're going to have to bear and believe and hope and endure. It's a long-term investment. Long love patiently prays for those who are lost and never stops inviting them to church. Never stops sharing the gospel. Always in the hope that maybe today's the day that they'll say yes. Long love sticks with that friend who is battling depression. Or that spouse trying to overcome an addiction. Or that wayward child who seems distant and disconnected from his parents. We are to love others as God has loved us with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. A wide love. A long love. It's also a high love. God's agape love is higher than what we typically think of as love. Certainly, if I say, I love pizza, I love the Smoky Mountains, I love Lego, I don't mean that the same way I say I love my daughter and I love my wife, do I? And I love my church. We mean different things by the word love. Love for things is a low-level love. Even if it's SEC football. Or European-style soccer. It doesn't matter. That's the love for things. Even friendship and romantic love, what the Greek calls philo and eros love, even these, when compared to agape, are low-level loves because these loves are based on how they make me feel. Right? I love the Great Smoky Mountains because of how they make me feel. I love pizza because of, of how it makes me feel. That doesn't make any sense because I usually feel bad after I eat it. But anyway, high love loves no matter how I feel. High love loves even when the emotions we typically connect with love aren't there. See, lower level loves are if kinds of love. I'll love you if you love me back. I'll love you if you make me feel special or important. I'll love you if you do what I say. I'll love you if it's fun. But high love chooses to love regardless of what you do or how I feel. Jesus loved us unto death. He didn't feel like dying on the cross. He didn't feel like loving us like that. He didn't want to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. But because Jesus had agape love for the Father and for us, it was for the joy set before Him He endured the cross and scorned its shame, as the writers of Hebrew tells us. When God commands us to love our enemies, He isn't telling us we have to like them. He's not saying we have to have good feelings for them. We're commanded to love them. The feelings, if they come, they can come later. But we obey God and we love now. Jesus said in Luke 6, 35 and 36, He says, but love your enemies. And then Jesus, notice He's not talking about feelings here. He's talking about action. 
Because love is an action, y'all. Love is a choice. Love is not an emotion. Love is only love in action. I saw a quaint saying on a refrigerator once that said, the love in your heart is not meant to stay. Love is not love until you give it away. And that may be kind of cheesy, but it's true. Now, Jesus here in Luke 6 mentions some specific actions that demonstrate love to our enemies, doesn't he? He says, do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. He tells us to be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked and to be merciful to them just as God the Father is merciful toward us. Nothing demonstrates the gospel more than when we love our enemies. And if you want to live out the gospel in real day-to-day life, your love should be wide. It should be long. It should be high. And it should be deep. It's a deep love. One of the reasons that Jesus spent so much time teaching us to love our enemies is because Jesus loved us, as I said, when we were God's enemies. Remember, God showed His love to us while we were still sinners. Jesus died for His enemies. Jesus, when He died on the cross, Jesus' love for us wasn't to give us a wink and a nod to our sin. It wasn't so that we could feel affirmed and approved in our sin. You see, that's the world's shallow definition of love. Our culture has reduced love down to the shallowest possible level. Consider how people try to love homosexuals, for example. I'm sure they're very well-meaning. But when you look at someone who is openly involved in what the Bible clearly says is sin, and you applaud them, and you encourage them to be themselves, you say, look, you do you. You follow your heart. You don't let anyone change you. Y'all, that's not showing them the love of God. People who are trying to be open-minded and tolerant, well, they're going to say, well, but David, real love accepts people as they are. Yes, it does. Real love accepts people as they are in their sin. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, all of us. But real love doesn't leave you there. Real love says, I love you and I care about you too much to just leave you in your sin. I love and care about you too much to just let you go down this destructive path and grow further and further away from God and His pleasing and perfect will for your life. Jesus' love was so deep, He died for our sins. Not so we could feel good and secure in our sinfulness, not to turn our sins into a subculture, but to forgive us and free us and transform us from our sin. That is some deep, costly love. The wages of sin is death. It's death. And Jesus' deep love said, I'll pay that price. I'll make that sacrifice for you. How much are you willing to pay to love someone? Are you willing to risk being labeled a hater or a bigot by loving someone enough to point out their sin? To plead with them to return to God? Do you love them enough to risk losing the friendship if it potentially means saving their soul? Now listen, this doesn't mean that we get up in people's face. This doesn't mean we get into Facebook debates with people. This doesn't mean that we demand that people change now before we accept them. That's not what any of that means. 
that it means that when we love people in the midst of their sin, whatever that sin may be, including the people sitting right next to you right now, as we love people in their sin, we love them enough to not be content to leave them there. But we encourage them and we pray for them. And we let God speak His truth through us to them, just as we should hope and pray they do the same for us. Amen? I need you to point out the blind spots in my life that I don't see so that I can grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you willing to pay the price of time, energy, financial resources to love someone with the love of God, not expecting anything in return? See, real love has deep pockets. It's a well that never runs dry. Because agape love comes from the never-ending fount of the Holy Spirit. Now, if I'm loving you from my supply of love, well, that's a shallow well. If I'm just loving you with David's love, it's going to run out pretty quick. But when I'm connected with the vine, when I'm the branch connected with the vine, when I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to fill me up, I have access to a well that never runs dry. I've got a deep well of the love of God that I can give and share to the people around me. This is what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 4, where he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, our definition of love is often self-serving, self-preserving. Jesus warned us in the Sermon on the Mount about not settling for a love that only meets our needs and our desires. He said, hey, if you just love people who are going to love you back, what reward is there in that? How are you any different than the pagans? We're to love people that we know won't give us anything back. We're to love people that we expect nothing in return from them. When love is self-serving and possessive, it's deadly. But when our love is sacrificial and grace-filled, it's a life-giving virtue. And love is difficult, y'all. It's not easy to trade hate for love. Selfishness for sacrifice. An inward focus for an outward focus. It goes against our nature. It's like trying to push a car uphill. It costs us in time and energy and resources. It costs us ourselves. But this kind of love is the gospel. This is how God has loved us. And we can give this kind of love to other people only if we've received it from God first. How wide is your love this morning? Is it wide enough to encompass your neighbor? Those who are different from you? Even your enemies? How long is your love? Does your love come with an expiration date? How patient and long-suffering are you with the people in your life? How high is your love? Do you only love when you're going to get something in return? Or when it makes you feel good? Or when it's convenient? How deep is your love? Are you willing to pay the price to love as God loves? To forgive others in the same way that God has forgiven you? 
Will you abide with Jesus daily so that He can refill that well of love in your life every day so you can give more of it away? And, and, and that's the key. The key to all of this is abiding in Christ. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Abiding in Christ is, is a daily activity like eating or breathing. Look, I can't, my life can't be sustained on the last breath I took, can it? I can't expect a meal I ate last week to nourish me today. I have to breathe, I have to eat, I have to sleep every day. And every day I have to abide in Christ. I can't just rely on a spiritual experience I had years ago. I need to come weekly together with you, my church family, to worship and to study and to grow and to fellowship and to serve. I need that to sustain and nourish me. And I need to every day spend time in God's Word and prayer. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, Paul says, You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And he says the entire law is summed up in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But if we keep on biting and devouring each other, we'll be destroyed by each other. So if we live by the Spirit, he says we're not going to gratify the the desires of the sinful nature. But he goes on in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit... You're not under the law. You're under grace. You're under the law of love. The law of love should be the only law that rules the hearts and lives of God's people. Living a life of love requires the presence of God's love in us. Producing in us the fruit of love for others. The Bible can give us guidance on how to love, but it's the Spirit that gives us the power to love. This morning, do you know the love of God Have you experienced the power of God's love at work in your life? Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins. He died on the cross so that you could know the love of God and have that love live in you and through you to other people. Have you ever put your faith and trust in Christ and experienced that? If you've not, then I invite you right now to come and to give your life to Jesus Christ and receive the love of God. Maybe this morning God is is leading you and your family to unite with this church. This church that seeks, seeks and strives to love each other the best way we can. To seek, to, to strive to love this community the best way we can. We're not perfect, but we're working on it. And we're learning and we're growing and we're doing more and more to try to embody the love of God for each other and for this world. You want to be a part of that? And help us to love deep and long and wide and high. We invite you to come and unite with us this morning. Maybe God has spoken to you and, and you know you need to grow in your love in some way. I encourage you again to use that packet this week to work on that. But maybe you know right now that there's unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe you know right now there are people that you are more afraid of than you love them because they're just different from you and you've not taken the time to get to know them. Maybe this morning you want to come and just pray at this altar and commit yourself to grow in your love this week. However God is leading you, I pray you would respond. Let's pray together before we stand and sing. Father, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for Your Spirit that enables us to love others with the same love that You've loved us. God, forgive us for where we've been measured in our love, where we've held our love back out of fear, out of selfishness, out of resentment. 
God, help us to not live under the law, not to live under judgment and restriction, but God, help us to live under grace. Help us to walk and live by the Spirit and express Your love freely to the people You bring into our lives. A love that truly cares for the eternal well-being of other people and will step out of its comfort zone to share the Gospel and speak Your truth and to say, I'm with you to the end. Move and work in our hearts today and lead us to be obedient. In Jesus' name we pray.